Well, we bring you greetings today in Jesus' name. Good to see each one that is here this morning. It seems like it's been a long time once again. I think I probably say that every time I come, right? The nice thing about getting older, you don't necessarily remember what you said the last time you came. Yeah, you do. Okay. All right. Well, it's not the same, I'm sure. Yes, uh, praise the Lord. It is uh, wonderful to be seeing rain. I don't know if it's been as dry down here as it is up in Northumberland County, but uh, things are looking like uh, pineapples instead of corn. So uh, I hope some of this is happening to get on a few valleys north of here, too. I was thinking as our brother was sharing this morning in the opening, um, it is easy for us to begin to take things for granted, isn't it? Last Saturday, we were at a funeral. My step-grandfather died, and so we were back here at Clauser's funeral home and had a funeral. Yesterday, we were at a funeral. Uh, my mother-in-law has had a fiancé for more than 40 years, and he died, 93 years old, and so we were at a funeral. I probably should be at a funeral tomorrow, but I can't get there. Uh, Daryl Rice, a boy that I used to pick up when we drove van for the children at Fontana School. And he just lost his only child and his wife, one swipe. You know, I think we sometimes take too much for granted with what God provides us. Rain, we soon complain if it gives too much. But then we really complain when it doesn't give enough. What about each other? How much do we think about the blessing that God had in mind when he gave us each other? And uh, we live in a society that believes in disposable relationships. We really do. So it's, it's good to be thankful and praise the Lord for each other and for the various gifts that he has given that he makes up his body, the church, here at Shaperstown with, and blesses. Now, that's not my message today, but if you'll turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6, we'd like to speak on the subject, and that is the kingdom view of wealth. The kingdom view of wealth. And you might be asking why I'm not going to Matthew and Matthew chapter 6, possibly, and some of the other teachings of Jesus directly, but I'd like us to consider this particular portion, 1 Timothy chapter 6, and I might just go ahead and read that for us. Let as many servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor that the name of God and his doctrine be not blasphemed. And they that have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather do them service, because they are faithful and beloved, partakers of the benefit. These things teach and exhort. If any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but doting about questions and strifes of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil, evil surmisings, Perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness. From such withdraw thyself. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us be therewith content. 
But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life whereunto thou art also called and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. I give thee charge in the sight of God who quickeneth all things and before Christ Jesus who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good confession that thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which in his times he shall show, who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. Charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy, that they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust. Avoid profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science falsely so-called which some professing have erred concerning the faith. Grace be with thee. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading of his word today. Let's talk a little bit about a background to this. You know, it is felt by most scholars that this was being written by Paul around A.D. 60. So the church is now 30, 31 years old, depending on your reckoning of time, but approximately 30 years. And some of the apostles are dead and gone. Well, let's think about this. Some of the Gospels have been written, but they haven't all been written yet. So we're talking about the pristine church, and yet we're not talking about the first five years, the first ten years, we're 30 years into it. What was being done with the teachings that Jesus gave about wealth and this world's goods in that time period, 30 years after the church had begun? Now, I think that's a healthy perspective for us. It's good for us to be able to, uh, to know what Jesus taught. But he counted himself the cornerstone, and the others counted himself to be the cornerstone, the chief cornerstone. But the foundations were also the apostles and their teachings. He had spent some very intense time with them, training them on things that we don't even have recorded in the Gospels. But let's think about this. Matthew. Matthew was written only about A.D. 69 or 70. And so this writing to Timothy is about 10 years before the book of Matthew was written. Uh, Mark was written early, as early as A.D. 55. So Mark was a new book, five years maybe old when this letter to Timothy was being written. Luke, A.D. 60, right about the same time this letter was being written, the Gospel of Luke was also written. written. John came very much later, 85 to 95 AD, so quite a few years later. So imagine there is no Bible, there is no New Testament, there is no put together version. There are letters like this epistle that Paul is writing to Timothy and he's sending it out to churches. Now, in the early days, the church was primarily Jewish, 
But in this 30-year period, there was a transition to where the church was heavily Gentile, if not mainly Gentile, especially in some areas. Timothy. Timothy was up in Phrygia. Phrygia was pagan, very pagan in the early days. Timothy spent a fair amount of time in Laodicea, which was one of the chief cities of Phrygia. All right, in Asia Minor. Modern day what? Who knows where it is today? Turkey. Turkey. That's right. Modern day Turkey. And so we're getting some concept of when and uh, where this epistle fits in with other writings of the New Testament. Some of the apostles, as I mentioned, were already martyred, but there were many apostles that were still living. And so the words of the apostles were being carried by themselves as well as their disciples, those that the apostles had trained. They taught Jesus' teachings by extension. And you'll note these themes in the epistles. And I think it's noteworthy. Jesus taught extensively on the relationship of those who have faith and this world's wealth. So let's talk about that. Paul uh, didn't beat around the bush. He went right at it. But he started out with an interesting subject, which is one of those common themes that if you get to reading the epistles, you will see it comes up again and again and again. And that is the relationship between servants and masters. Now, it would be easy if I only read from Matthew, say, chapter 6, to just come up with a what we call a porch swing theology. I'm going to sit on the porch swing and like the birds and like the lilies of the field, God is just going to provide for me and, and I'm going to just sit back and wait for it to come. If I were to read only those verses, I could almost come up with that theology. And there have been some in the past who have done just that. Of course, if you read the rest of Jesus' teachings, you can't justify that way, that thinking that way about those verses. If I read just the book of Acts, especially the first few chapters, and saw what happened in the early church, I could come up with an idea that the only right way to do church is a commune, and that we're going to sell everything we have, and we're going to live communally. Now, I do believe, and I think it's gospel, that we need to sell out. We need to sell out to Christ. And that when we give our heart to him, it's not just our heart, it's everything that goes with us. All that we are, all that we have is his. But I don't think that means the auctioneers are going to be making a lot of commission every time someone gets converted. Because they're selling out. That selling out is... When God puts his finger on something that he wants from us, we're not putting up a hand and saying, Ah, oh, no, Lord, you can't go there. Because it already was given to him. It's already his. But I don't think that we can consistently come up with a teaching in the early centuries of Christianity that all believers became part of a commune like the fellowship at Jerusalem where they went and sold all things. I think the fellowship at Jerusalem really thought Jesus is coming in a week or two. What's the point of going back to our homes? What's the point of having anything? Let's just wait till he comes. And it finally took a scattering to realize that maybe it isn't going to be a week or two. Maybe it'll be a year or two. And we better do something a little different than what we're doing or we may not be able to sustain ourselves until he comes. And you know, some of them should have thought a little harder about the words of Christ when he said, occupy until I come. 
There has always been those false prophets who have called people to a place. Jesus is coming again and he's coming over this place. So go sell all you have, come up on the hill and wait for him to come. But that rejects the teaching of occupation. Occupy till he comes. This servant-master relationship is an ongoing theme. And I find it interesting that at this time period, especially to Gentiles, it's being emphasized again. And I think we need to understand a few things from it. First off, I think we have to understand God's desire for headship order. You know, it's not just talking about the headship order of men and women. God's desire for headship order. There is to be an order to things. And in Timothy and in Titus and in Colossians and in Philippians, he brings it out again and again. You know, we have a government. We have it for a purpose. It's part of headship order. Are they perfect? Are they really serving God? Well, they're serving God's purposes, but a lot of times inadvertently. They don't even realize it, that God is manipulating things in the course of human history, that the governments of this world serve his purposes in the end. But he says, I want you to look past the government, and I want you to see that when you serve them in every way you can conscientiously, you're serving me. How about in the church? Some of you that have been at Harmony long enough will remember there was a younger man who was among us for a bit and had a notion that we have it all wrong. There should never be any leadership in the church and that we're not even doing it right by having somebody stand up. We should be sitting in a circle and any brother or sister who feels led should just speak up. Okay? That was a notion. There was a book that was out that says that's how the early church was. Not based on history, though, unfortunately, based on somebody's charismatic notion today. Um, there is headship in the church. There was design, by design, order in the church. It was not, as some try to promote, just a free-for-all. There is no Christian Lone Ranger. That doesn't fit with one anothering commanded to us in the New Testament church. The concept that somehow it's just me and God, and I hear directly from God, and therefore I don't need to hear anyone else, disallows the fact that God's Holy Spirit dwells in every believer. And if I come up to that conclusion, I'm in essence saying Peter misinterpreted the book of Joel when he said he'll pour out his spirit on all flesh and your sons and daughters will prophesy. Was prophesying just vain words? Or is the gift of the spirit given for the edification of the body of Christ? And we have to reckon that I don't have it all in myself. I need you. You don't have it all in yourself. You may even need me, believe it or not. It's the way God intended it. Codependency and a headship order. And someone gives some direction to the whole thing. As a shepherd, as Christ gave direction to his disciples, a shepherd over the church gives direction as well. But now let's go one step further. We see that in family relationships. How would it be if there was no head of the home? 
Well, we know how it goes when there's no head of the home. Just look around us in society and we'll realize that things are crumbling and there is a reason many times. Jesus marveled at the centurion's faith. What was it that made that centurion's faith so outstanding to Christ was he recognized headship order. Jesus, you don't need to come to my house. You know what? I'm a man that's under authority. And I understand that when I'm under the authority of the emperor, that when I give a command, his authority I am representing, my men go do what I told them to do. Jesus, I recognize that you're an authority over all things in the universe. And if you just say the word, something's going to happen. Jesus marveled over that man's understanding of headship authority. And he, he, he was rejoicing in it. And he was reproving the Jews with it. You know, there is a place for masters. Now, let's bring it to our day. Jesus' day, it was masters and servants, masters and slaves. There is a place for employers. And that's what this is talking about here. That as many employees as are under the yoke count their own employers worthy of all honor that the name of God and his doctrine be not blasphemed. We can safely plug those words in without corrupting the text at all. And that gives us an understanding of a few things. This place for masters I find unique. Turn back just a few pages with me to the little red book of Philemon. It's only one chapter. But I'm going to read it to us because I think it's very valuable in understanding God's heartbeat for masters. Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, and Timothy, our brother, unto Philemon, our dearly beloved and fellow laborer, and to our beloved Aphia, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in thy house. Now, I'm going to make a few assumptions here. I assume, of course, Philemon is probably an elder, and he is probably running a church in his home. And Aphia may be his wife, and Archippus may even be his brother or a, another uh, individual in that church in leadership. I'm not certain there. It doesn't give us details. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God, making mention of thee always in my prayers, hearing of thy love and faith which thou hast toward the Lord Jesus and toward all saints that the communication of thy faith may become effectual by the acknowledging of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. For we have great joy and consolation in thy love, because the bowels of the saints are refreshed by thee, brother. Wherefore, though I might be much bold in Christ to enjoin thee that which is convenient, yet for love's sake I rather beseech thee, being such an one as Paul the aged, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ." I beseech thee for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my bonds, which in time past was to thee unprofitable. Now, interesting little detail. Onesimus, I wonder if that was his real name, or if that was Paul's given name to him. But apparently, apparently, either way, Philemon was familiar with the name. But Onesimus means profitable. It's interesting when you catch that little detail. Onesimus means profitable. And he says, I beseech thee for my son Onesimus, or profitable, whom I have begotten in my bonds, which in time past was to thee unprofitable. 
but now profitable to thee and to me, whom I have sent again, sent again. Thou therefore receive him, that is, mine own bowels, whom I would have retained with me, that in thy stead he might have ministered unto me in the bonds of the gospel. But without thy mind would I do nothing, that thy benefit should not be as it were of necessity, but willingly. For perhaps he therefore departed for a season, that thou shouldest receive him forever, not now as a servant, but above a servant, a brother beloved, specially to me. But how much more unto thee, both in the flesh and in the Lord? If thou count me therefore a partner, receive him as myself. If he hath wronged thee, or oweth thee aught, put that on mine account. I, Paul, have written it with mine own hand. I will repay it, albeit I do not say to thee how thou owest unto me even thine own self besides. Yea, brother, let me have joy of thee in the Lord. Refresh my bowels in the Lord. Having confidence in thy obedience, I wrote unto thee knowing that thou wilt also do more than I say. But withal prepare me also a lodging, for I trust that through your prayers I shall be given unto you. There salute thee, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, Marcus, Aristarchus, Demas, Lucas, my fellow laborers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Now, the interesting concept here is nowhere in here does Paul give a railing accusation against Philemon for having a servant. And whether that servant, which would appear to have actually been a slave, there is no railing accusation. Paul, don't you get it? The gospel is that we're all on one level. There is no one that's over anyone else. There is no headship, Paul or Philemon. Why don't you get this? I don't find it anywhere in the letter. Matter of fact, I find him respecting the headship that Philemon rightfully had over Onesimus to the point that he sent Onesimus back to make some things right, I, I suspect. And he wouldn't keep Onesimus there to serve him without hearing the heart of Philemon. Now, I believe Paul's real desire was for reconciliation to happen. I think it was. And that is the Spirit of God. He is a reconciler. And so it should be our heartbeat, too, for reconciliations to happen. But here I don't see this attitude that there should never be a master and there should never be a servant. Now we could get into history and say, would to God that both the North and the South before the Civil War would have agreed that there's got to be a better way to settle this than killing each other. There's got to be a better way. And there would have been. But... That aside, let's go back to our topic. Employers should be respected and honored. I believe that's a principle of Scripture. Matter of fact, if we don't honor our employers, we are giving ammunition to those who are watching, the onlookers, to blaspheme our God. Because, amazingly, the world gets it that there is a headship order. The world gets it. And so, if I don't honor my employer, it may not even be from my employer who blasphemes God, but someone watching me will have material to blaspheme the God I claim to serve. Believing employers shall not be despised is another principle we got from this sixth chapter of 1 Timothy. You mean that 
not only should there be employers, not only should we honor them, some of them might be brothers. Recently, I read the book, Church Matters. If you don't get a chance to read it, Gary Miller's book is very, very well written. I was asked as one of the members of Life Ministries uh, board whether I would read it to decide whether it's something that we should translate into Haitian Creole for the, for the Haitian people. I uh, quickly declined that thought. It was not at all something that's going to deal with them, but it deals with us as Anabaptist people very much. And it would be right for us to read it. And one of his illustrations he gives in there of a situation where a man was an employer and employed about three quarters of the men in the church. That man became rather wealthy. And this created some real stumbling blocks for him. And I think we need to be aware that some of those things are very much a reality. They can happen. Matter of fact, you shouldn't do this, but when I was reading it, my mind went to a couple circumstances and situations that could have almost been the one he was talking about. But the point is this. <clears throat> we don't have scripture to say that a Christian should never be an employer. Matter of fact, we have scripture who says the opposite. And I'm going to say that <clears throat> having been at, at Harmony for however many years it is since back in 96, that probably without it being taught, we as a brotherhood in the early days were a bit idealistic, maybe. Maybe. I see Earl smiling. Just a little bit, maybe. And without it necessarily being taught, we kind of embraced a concept of voluntary poverty. Uh, some of us didn't have a lot of options, but we embraced it. But it did put us in a position that when our young people became old enough for employment, we didn't have any employers among us. And some of us send our young people out to other places to get employment, and some of that was very much less than desirable. And I think that as a brotherhood is maturing, we need to sometimes look back and say, you know what, that decision or that direction, wasn't even a decision so much as a direction, probably wasn't the healthiest. Now, we wanted to take Jesus' words very seriously about riches and the temptations that go with them. That was good. But to go to the point where we didn't have anybody among us with entry-level positions for our young people, our single sisters, probably wasn't the best. Just looking back. It's not throwing stones. It's not criticizing anyone. Just us as a movement, we kind of weren't thinking ahead very far on that one. Being employer, a believing employer, shall not be despised. They do offer a service. And we need that kind of entry-level employment. A safe environment for young people, single sisters, etc. Master employers need to work extra hard to maintain their focus on the kingdom of God. Okay, that's the point. Not everyone is cut out to be an employer. Not everyone is cut out to be a master. And if you are, and that is your calling, you will have an extra responsibility to maintain your focus because there's going to be big pressures on you to lose your focus and to look to this world. Gain does not equal godliness. It never has. It never will. 
I will never forget, probably, a little chick track I saw. And this tract was taking a slam at the name it and claim it health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. And someone was standing at a prison door with his finger accusingly pointing in through the prison door at a person that was representing the Apostle Paul. And this man is saying, Apostle Paul, you're a lousy apostle. If you only had faith, you'd be out of this prison, rich, healthy, and famous. Showing the folly of health, wealth, prosperity, gospel. And I can't always agree with where the chick tracks go, but I could certainly agree with that particular little little scene. We have to recognize that gain does not equal godliness. Sacrificial living is the call for masters as well as servants for the sake of sacrificial giving. Verses 17 through 19 give the warning there, charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy, that they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. And so it's a warning against putting our hope and our trust in those riches. Managing employees, wealth and business is an extra strain on the brain. It sometimes goes with you when you leave the office. It may go with you to your home. Verse 10 says it pierced themselves through with many sorrows. I found it interesting reading the Amplified's version of that. It says pierced themselves through with many acute mental pangs. Uh, anybody an employer? You know what that's talking about? All right. Let's go on. Keeping our focus on service, not on profit. Verses 7 through 12 in chapter 6. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us be therewith content. But they that will be rich fall into temptation, a snare, into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called, and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. Keeping our focus on service, not on profit. Um, I worked for many years for an employer, and I can say I don't remember that employer talking about profit ever. Except to say this. If you serve the people well, the prophets will take care of themselves. Um, lots of things change in businesses, and that has definitely changed. But it's important for us as believers to keep our focus on the service side, because that's what we're called to. Proper view of this world's wealth. You know, I just talked about being at a couple funerals. These two men were both old. But they had not a whole lot in common other than that. Neither one of them was believers. But they still did not have a lot in common other than that. One thing they did have in common, though. Many years ago, a wealthy man in a small town died. And a nosy neighbor went to the preacher that was having the funeral. And he leaned over to the preacher and he says, Tell me, can you tell me how much did he leave behind? 
preacher said, that's easy. All of it. These two men that we just buried in the last week had that in common. They left all of it behind. And we need to keep that perspective of wealth. I don't care how much you accumulate, you will leave all of it behind. I'll never forget when uh, Stephen Ebersol was a, a bishop in the Eastern Church as a, just a young man. I heard him preach in that message. I'll, I'll, I'll long remember it. And he was saying, you know, we, now he was talking to his own people. He's saying, we as Mennonites, we strive to build up and build up and we get our farms and we get our little empires. And he says, you know, at the end of life, it's all going to burn. And who cares if your pile of ashes is bigger than mine? That doesn't just apply to those who have the name Mennonite in their church, does it? The pile of ashes is not the point, is it? What and how do we think about wealth in this world? Keeping a proper view. Whatever you've got, you're going to be leaving behind. We are called to be users of this world's goods, but not abusers. Verse 9 and 10, the world loves money. Let's not imitate them. It is the love of money that is the root of all evil. Money itself is fairly neutral. But it is the love of it that makes it the root of all evil. And the world loves money. Matter of fact, your American dollar says, in God we trust, and that's a lie. That is a lie. It should say, in this we trust. Well, you better, because there ain't nothing behind it. (laughs) The world loves money. An inordinate desire for unearned gain. Let's talk about that a little bit. We're going to leave the employers go. We've basically covered that. We're going to talk a little bit about the world's love of money. Inordinate desire for unearned gain. In my lifetime... I have seen the uprising of gambling casinos. And it blows my mind. What are people thinking that go and stand in line at gambling casinos? I can't understand it. Of course, many a times, convenience stores are not so convenient. You get in and there's a whole line of people standing behind somebody who's buying a whole raft of lottery tickets. And I'm thinking to myself... What are people thinking? Don't they realize that the professional gambling industry has it all figured out so that you don't win? You don't win. And the person who gives themselves to the gambler's mindset, even when they appear to have won, are still a loser. Because it destroys who they are and what they are. This desire, it is eating, consuming desire for unearned gain. I want something for nothing. What about raffle tickets? (laughs) When I was a boy growing up in the General Conference Mennonite Church, I had a Sunday school teacher who was, and I don't want to cast a reflection on everybody there, but this man was not a very spiritual man. He belonged to a fire company. That doesn't necessarily mean he was unspiritual, but he belonged to a fire company, and the fire company is having a raffle to raise money for the fire company. And every one of the members got given so many tickets to sell. 
Well, he didn't want to go sell raffle, raffle tickets. Everybody knew he was a member of, it was a liberal Mennonite church, but it was still a Mennonite church. So <laughs> he didn't want to sell them, so he just bought them all himself. And guess what? When they drew the raffle, here he had won a brand new television set. Problems. You know, if we won't stand for something, we soon fall for anything. That's just how it is. What would have been wrong with saying, you know what, I really don't believe in raffles. I'm, I'm not interested. If, if you want a donation, I'll give a donation. What, what would have been wrong with that? And sometimes the more we try to cover up, the quicker we get exposed. So everyone who knew he was a man, and I also knew he had won the television set. Okay, well, in that particular church, that was not an issue. Uh, most of them had televisions already, but it still just didn't look so good that he wanted at a raffle. That wasn't so acceptable. Carnival. Games of chance. Oh, that's harmless, right? You know, it's just raising money for, the, for the, maybe it's the uh, Mary Gate of Heaven Catholic Church or something. Um, but that whole desire to get something for nothing... I'm going to take a chance. I'll buy a couple tickets for a dollar or two, and I might get something for nothing. There is a a real problem, a root core problem with that whole idea. Gambling on sports, on games, football, baseball, basketball, working in public works, you hear it all the time. It gets old. Sweepstakes, free drawings gets right down to uh, things that come to our door. We don't have to go looking for them. And you know, today, you have the scammers. Those who want to call you on the phone, send you some junk mail, or get a hold of you on Internet. And they can soon figure out what makes you tick. You know that? I don't know how they do it. But they soon figure out Okay, so being on mission boards and involved in other boards, I get a lot of international emails. So suddenly I start getting emails two, three times a week at Dutch Valley when I worked there. And almost the same storyline on each one, just slightly different details. Dear brother in Christ, we are so glad to have found you. I am a widow of such and such doctor from could have been Ghana, could have been France, could have been Nigeria, could have been, you name the place, it doesn't matter. And uh, it might be in English, it might be in Spanish, it might be in French, but um, the storyline still comes out about the same. My husband and I could never have any children. My husband uh, attained to, however you name it, so many million dollars in wealth. And uh, now uh, he is dead and gone, and he has put this in a trust, and we need to find a godly, trustworthy Christian man who can distribute these funds for us. And we were not asking you to do this without any recompense. You'll get a percentage that they usually name uh, for handling this matter for us. Now, all you need to do is respond to that. Send them your check information so that they can have that electronically deposited in your account and you'll find your account is cleaned out. How many people fall for that stuff? The motivation is the love of money. Let's deal with the motivation and we won't be scammed. Let's not look for something for nothing. 
O man of God, flee these things. You know, I read that flee, and there's one other place that we read the word flee. Flee idolatry. And you know what? The root of this sin of love of money is covetousness, which is what? Idolatry. Now, I don't think that I could coax any of us to go into a Buddhist temple and embrace a gold image of Buddha. We wouldn't do it. I don't think that I could take you up over the mountain here into Schuylkill County to the Vraj and get you to embrace the image of a Hindu god. I don't think I could. I don't know if you knew that place is there. It's the largest Hindu temple in North America. Just over the mountain on 895. But I don't think I'd convince any of us to go embrace one of those Hindu idols. But somehow the devil can cause us to be tempted to embrace another idol. The love of money. And so I think we need to be always on our guard and aware of that one. That one's trickier than the others. Instead, we're called to follow righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and meekness. And if you take those six things and focus on them, you will have no time to focus on much else. Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and meekness. And we're called to fight, but not fight to get rich. We're called to fight the good fight of faith. We're living in a corrupt society. A society who has lost its way. A society who is filled with broken pieces that aren't finding answers. There is no contentment in the solutions that they're coming up with. Will we fight the good fight of faith? Let the world keep their idols. We have something better. Verses 13 through 16. I give thee charge in the sight of God who quickeneth quickeneth all things and before Christ Jesus who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good confession that thou keep this commandment without spot unrebukable unto the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which in his times he shall show who is the blessed and only potentate the King of kings and the Lord of lords who only hath immortality dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto whom no man hath seen nor can see to whom be honor and power everlasting Amen Let's let the world keep their idols. Jesus kept his perspective. You know, he witnessed a good witness before Pontius Pilate. As I was meditating upon that, I had to be thinking about, in light of this subject, how is Paul tying this in as he writes to Timothy? And this is what I came up with. Jesus told Pilate, my kingdom, yes, I'm a king, but my kingdom is not of this world. He kept his focus on the kingdom, which is not of this world. And this world's wealth is of this world. And so Jesus wasn't interested in it. Matter of fact, Jesus died with only what he was wearing. That was his, the extent of his wealth. We need to keep this perspective. It's commanded to us to do so. Jesus is coming again. We need to be looking for him, but we need to be occupying until he comes. He is alone, Almighty God. All the gods of this world shall pass away with the world itself and its wealth. He is eternal life. Eternity flows from Him. I don't care how much wealth you can acquire, you cannot purchase that eternal life. It's not for sale. 
He is dwelling where we shall dwell in undescribable light. No wealth, gold, silver, corporations, mansions, fine automobiles, etc. can hold a candle to that light. To Jesus and his kingdom be honor, power, glory forevermore. And may God bless you as you serve him.